You know, I really enjoyed the organ this morning on our camp song. That last hymn was a camp song. And did you notice the, the image that Diane selected on the organ? It sounded campy, didn't it? Isn't that cool? A lot of those details just kind of get biased. Before we begin the discourse this morning, friends, I'd like to remind you that um, if you're a prime Amazon streamer, there is a product that you can stream. It's now on their sub-library called Freebie. But the title of this documentary is called Is Genesis History? And it's hosted by Dr. Dell Tackett. It's very interesting. And you can go home today if you like to and stream it with commercials now. But it's about an hour and 40 minutes. And it is really a neat overview of the book of Genesis and how it relates to science. So it's called Is Genesis History? And as I was doing some research this weekend, there are five more now, five more of these documentaries addressing geology, biology, and different disciplines in the scientific world. This is going to be our fourth discourse in entry and looking at and studying Genesis. And remember the first one, we talked about the philosophical and logical underpinnings of probably how the universe got here. Remember that? And we decided that, you know, it didn't make itself. It hasn't always been here. We examined some of the other theories, but we determined that an impersonal agent didn't create the universe. It had to be a personal agent because personal means intention planning. And then we thought if the universe is bounded by time, space, matter, and energy, there's that box. The one that creates something in the box has to be outside the box. So we talked about that person or that entity being timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful, intelligent, personal, and moral. You put those seven adjectives together, we get... God, right, okay. And in our second discourse, we looked at chapter 1 of Genesis and its many patterns that the Lord had laid down for us, some of them more obvious, some of them more subtle. We asked ourselves three questions then. Um, does God love us? Can God be trusted? And does God want us confused? So as we read that narrative, is this what God wants us to know about himself? And then in chapter 2, the last discourse, we talked about um, how some skeptics regard chapter 2 of Genesis as a competing creation narrative. And we decided that it could be more uh, appropriately considered a complementary um, creation narrative which buttresses the first chapter and then we looked at something called a toldeth excuse me if I didn't pronounce it that's Hebrew my Hebrew is really bad because I don't read or speak Hebrew but that there are 11 these throughout the 50 chapters of Genesis and they are like a subscript everything that happens above that then it's like authenticated and this first toldeth basically reads that these are the generations or these are the things or the narrative of the creation of the heaven and the earth and that's in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, well, who created the heavens and the earth? Well, the Lord God did, so perhaps this first holdeth is that which God then gave to Adam because there was no human witness, so he gives it to Adam. And now in this chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're going to find as in chapter 5, we get the, the next holdeth, which is these are the generations of Adam. For, so perhaps these are the oldest ideas and remarks and observations in our species by Adam as he starts bringing to us details of what it was like to live in the garden. So today is our fourth discourse and we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3. The title this morning is Paradise Lost or Paradise Trashed? Eden, the first crime scene. Okay. And if, you, if you'd like a worksheet, I think we might have some more worksheets if you. This is a slide-free day. I'm going to ask you to look at your sheets, and then if you'd like to make notes, please do so. 
Let's pray, shall we? Mighty one, I pray that you would remove me and in place put your mighty spirit that the words that are coming out of my mouth would be those that you desire for my brothers and sisters to hear. That as we leave this place today, we would be more like your son. That we would truly want all our praise to be yours. And the life that you have given us, we return to you in glory and in praise for all that you've done, are doing, and will be doing for us. In Christ's name we pray together, saying, Amen and Amen. Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. Got a clue to what that might be about? Are you old enough to remember the game Clue? In 1949, the Hasbro Toy Company came out with a game called Cluedo. It had six suspects, six weapons, and nine locations in Mr. Body's Tudor Mansion. Today, brothers and sisters, we have three suspects, one weapon, and one location. And from this narrative in Genesis 3, we will learn that sin is mankind's legacy. And that's us, mankind, human beings. That our legacy uh, is generated by Eve, who was deceived by the serpent, and Adam, who chose to disobey God and sin with his wife. Now, from the grandeur of creation in its vast array, the excited joy of first human life, to the ultimate tragedy and heartbreak of cosmic treason, the first crime scene in history is Eden. So we're going to divide today's chapter 3 in Genesis into three distinct sections. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 7, crimes. We're going to then look at uh, chapters 8 through 14, and that's going to be um, curses. And then the last verses are going to be castaways. That should be right there on your worksheet. All right. In the first division, mankind fails God's probationary period, verses 1 through 7, crimes. You'll see that in the NIV and the ESV, the connecting word now means that the first two chapters were a setup for what we read here in chapter 3. Here begins God's search and rescue operation, culminating, of course, in the ultimate first responder, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's interesting to note that the Hebrew word for serpent here, and again, pardon my pronunciation, is nakash. This word can be used as an adjective, it can be used as a verb, and it can be used as a noun. Let me read to you some of the definitions of the word nakash as we translate into servant. If it's used as an adjective, it means bright, as in brazen, as in polished brass. Or gleaming or glistening. If it's used as a verb, it means to whisper or to enchant. And if it's used as a noun, it's usually serpent, snake, or maybe even dragon. So let's put those three together and see who we are talking about today when it comes to this very crafty creature. You'll notice that the uh, adjective given to this creature is crafty. Now, this is not a bad thing, isn't it? God creates everything, and the final grade of creation is very good, right? So part of being skillful and clever or crafty is good. So let's not get the idea that, oh my gosh, somehow evil has invaded Eden. Uh -uh. This animal, this creature, is good. 
And it obviously also seems to us here that Eve isn't surprised that an animal's talking to her. It doesn't seem that there's any, whoa, what are you doing talking to me? Is it possible then that in Eden, in the Edenic realm, some animals were able to communicate with human beings? And who knows? You'll know also that when we go back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, there was a distinct division in the animal population. There were wild animals, and then there were domestic animals. Well, which category does this creature fall into? It's the wild side, isn't it? This creature is one of the wild animals, not domesticated, and not a crawler either, because the creepy and crawly things are in their own class, aren't they? And remember that Adam named the animals, at least at the genus level, way up here, not probably down to species level. But regardless, we're going to learn that the animating force behind this serpent is Satan. A fallen angel, perhaps the former chief angel, but he is doing mischief here. Now, Jesus says something about this animating force, this formerly high-regarded uh, angel. In Luke 10, verse 18, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus said that. Now, whether in possession of this creature or whether uh, in appearing as reward as an angel of light, the animating force going on in this creature right now is satanic. And what we're, going to write, what we're going to read here now in Genesis 3 is the analysis of how our enemy attacks. This is the assault of temptation. And it's the same thing every time. Our enemy has no new, new pages in his playbook. It's the same thing over and over and over again. Let's pull it apart and see how Satan is working this seduction with Eve. The first thing that our enemy does is that he questions God's authority or his goodness. And then the second thing our enemy does is he fiddles with the commands then the structure and the instructions of God. He reverses them or he perverts them or he corrupts them. And then lastly, he accuses God of being less than God. God is good. If you question God's goodness, then God is no longer God because God is truly good, right? So we see, first of all, that this Satan serpent, this creature, questions God's authority and goodness. In verse 1b, did God really say, you must not eat of any tree in the garden? See that little sneaky word in there? And then he wants to edit God's commands in verses 2 and 3. Even Eve speaks to the serpent. She doesn't seem to be repulsed by doing so. You notice that Eve uses the plural we, right? She's a faithful wife, right? She and Adam are one. She is demonstrating her loyalty to her husband here. Then you notice that there's an omission, the fact that God commands. God didn't say. He commanded Adam. This is a very important differentiation here. It's not a recommendation or a suggestion. God had commanded Adam, don't eat of the fruit of this particular tree. But guess what? You can eat of any other tree, not this one. That's in chapter 2, verse 16. Now, Satan will then omit something that God gives to us and then add something else. We see the addition here by Eve when she says that we must not touch it. Well, you know what could have happened here? This could have been Adam receiving the command from the Lord and then 
in loving concern for his wife. And honey, we shouldn't even touch it. Can you hear that in reality? A husband saying to his wife, you know, we should just, let's just put an eight-foot barrier around this thing and not even go close to it, right? But that is not God's command. So there's an addition here, right? There's an old saw that says cultists add to God's word, skeptics subtract from God's word, but they will both suffer the consequences of their error, won't they? So finally, there's an accusation that's going to be laid at God's feet, and that is simply this. God is holding back from you. He doesn't want you to have something, and that is certainly a lie because God's motivation is for our flourishing and for us to be stimulated rightly and in balance. So the temptation always comes in this sequence. The question of God's authority and his reality or his goodness. The editing of his commands and instructions. And then an accusation is laid against him. It's always the same. So what the saint and serpent wants you and me to do is to become God's inquisitor, editor, and accuser. <laughs> We're not qualified to do that, right? Now once... Our enemy has introduced this threefold assault against us. We go through something also, as did Eve. And it's called internalization. In verses 6 through 7, we see that the woman, Eve, sees the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's good to the eye. It's pleasing to the eye. It would gain her wisdom, therefore she eats. Then she gives some to her husband, who was with her, gentlemen. Gosh, it's so sad. And he eats too. Both of them have their eyes opened and realize they're naked. They sew, they sew fig leaves together and attempt to make coverings for themselves. So that's the review of verses 6 through 7. Now that God's authority and goodness have been displaced in Eve's reality, right? So she's, she's listened to the Satan serpent. She's processed the accusations in their threefold sequence. And she has decided to displace the king of the universe, to evict him from her inmost being, which is going to generate another eviction, isn't it, sadly? She's denied God's reality. She's defied his authority. She's looked her inmost being and determined that God is not qualified to sit on the throne of her life, so she has ejected him. She's rejected and then ejected. Now she's in a dilemma, isn't she? What else is there to fill that awful void now? Well, all she's ever known is what? Creation in its beauty and balance. So she's now going to take something that is created in the horizontal and replace it for that which is the true vertical. You recall that one of the patterns we looked at in the creation of all things is that God created and then filled, didn't he? He filled his creation. He made it rich and delighting physically, emotionally, and intellectually. Remember that. Physical, emotional, and intellectual. He has all given that to us in Genesis 1.31 in the beginning of chapter 2. But now temptation enters its second phase, which is internalization. Eve says that she saw the fruit. It was good for food. That is a physical aspect of internalization. Then secondly, she realizes the fruit was pleasing to the eye. That's emotional. And thirdly, it is desirable for gaining wisdom. That's intellect. So that fruit then 
represented to her something that God had always promised her. What happened here? What's the, thing, the single thing that happened was that her eyes came off Creator and went to that which is created, didn't it? And all the promises that God had made to her and her husband, which is fulfillment, which is satisfaction, which is stimulation, which is beauty, had been transferred from their source to a product of God's world. What do we call it when we take something to replace him and him alone? We call it idol worship, don't we? Sadly, Eve had made an idol of the fruit. Oh, I don't do that. <laughs> oh, no, not me. I have never supplanted the king of the universe for something else, have I? Of course I have, and you know I have. On my 69th birthday, you know that I have. We'll talk about the illustration of someone saying, well, I would have never done that if I'd been in Eden. It's coming, all right? It just put me in the place, and you'll know it's true for sure, right? Everything in Eve's experience up to this point was good. It was pleasing. It was desirable because her focus had been on God. But you take these same right elements and you focus on the fruit instead of God. Doug Sachs, it produces a bitter fruit, doesn't it? Doug emailed me a couple months ago. Hey, listen, for Genesis 3, isn't it a, a sad contrast between this fruit and the fruit of the Spirit? You see, it's not the fruit that's the problem, is it? The fruit is good. It's what we do with the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is born and sweet and right because of the generator of that fruit. The generation of the sin is not the fruit itself. It's us making a choice that is destructive and mortal to us. What do we have if God is dethroned on our inmost being? We get a culture, we get a civilization of people without God making it up as we go along and bumping into each other, which we call war and strife. Paradise lost. <laughs> wasn't an accident, friends. It was trashed. Well, it seems Adam was there with his lovely wife the entire time. He wasn't off gardening somewhere. Oh, I wish he had been, right? He was with his wife. He watched the tempter and the seducer do his work on his lovely bride. Sadly, Adam failed his wife. He failed himself, and he failed his king. But come on, fellas, just as a second, let's take a look at this. I mean, she is the capstone of creation. She's the last thing that God creates. She's the generator of the first poetry in human history. She's lovely. She's intelligent. She's capable. Maybe she knows something I don't know. So instead of stepping between his wife and the threat, he stood there. Men, have you ever stood there while your wife was in jeopardy? Hmm? We're supposed to present our wives clothed in white before the king as our bride. I failed, failed, failed that responsibility and privilege over and over again. Well, Adam doesn't step in. He doesn't place himself between his wife and the threat. And then we see what happens. He takes the fruit and they eat. Now there's this odd thing here coming up. Suddenly, 
They know they're naked. <laughs> well, what about before? They'd seen each other. They were looking at each other. They were looking at each other in God's glorious kingdom. One of the scholars I was looking at this week for this sermon is that as Jesus was transfigured and his essence radiated the glory of Shekinah glory of God into creation, remember that? When Peter, James, and John saw him in his glorified state, was this Adam and Eve state in Eden? They, they radiated God's glory back into the creation. You can't see that I'm naked when I'm radiating God's glory, can you? But when the lights went out, oops. So what's the response of human beings when it comes to being naked before the one true God? Oh, we can fix this. We'll make ourselves some fig suits, right? You can have a fig dress. I'll have a fig three-piece suit with a fig tie. What does the fig suit represent to me and you in this passage today? It represents our futile attempts to make things right in regard to God. Fig suits don't work. This represents the work of our hand, our imagination, our will. This problem isn't a matter of fig suits. It's what's happened inside me. I've ejected God. The aura is gone. I'm naked because of what's happened to my relationship with God, not what's out here. So fig suits are futile, aren't they? They are futile. So my response to being tempted in failure is a fig suit. Well, let's go see what did Jesus do when he was tempted. Prior to the initiation of his public ministry, he was tempted. Matthew chapter 4. Is this true? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Well, can you imagine what tactics Satan used to try to tempt the king of the universe? What did he do? Uh, talked about bread, didn't he? That would be physical. He talked about, well, let's take you to the highest point of the temple and you jump off and the angels will say you. Well, that's pride, right? Emotional. Yeah, you see all this stuff, Jesus? I'll give it all to you if you just worship me. Is that spiritual? Do you see any difference in Satan's tactics with Eve as with Jesus? No, it's exactly the same old stuff, isn't it? But the good news is Jesus used his superpowers to defeat Satan, didn't he? No. He used the exact same resources we have, the word of God and the spirit of God. What a great champion we have. A true human being who used the resources that God gave him as a human being so that we could see we have those same resources as human beings. So the next time your enemy comes up to you and says, you don't deserve to be a son or daughter of the Most High God. Your response should be, man, I know it. <laughs> I know it. You are so right. But you know what? My dad says I am. You might want to go take it up with him. And what will your enemy do? Fully. He'll flee. You don't want to deal with your dad, right? The first principle, there is no excuse for mankind's rebellion against the Lord God. There's no excuse. How can we apply that truth? How and where are you being deceived by that ancient serpent? How have you demonstrated mistrust in your master this week? What's the remedy? So I say, well, if I'd have been in Eden, I'd have never made that mistake. I'd have never said yes to that fruit. My friends, this morning I haven't pleased the king of the universe. Since I got up this morning, 
I've had an urge or a thought or a word that does not please him. So don't tell me I would have made the right decision in Eden. Their minds and imaginations were untouched by the perversion and the corruption of sin. Look at me. I'm the descendant of thousands of generations of human beings. Sin after sin after sin after sin. Yeah, I'd have made the same decision. The second division, Adam and Eve are punished for their divine treason. Verses 18 through 19. The shorty here is curses. In verses 8 through 11, man and woman bear God. They hear God walking in the garden and they hide. God calls, asking, where is man? Man responds in fear, aware of his nakedness. God asks, how did Adam know he was naked? Did he eat the prohibited fruit? There's the review. Verse 8. Adam and Eve hear God walking in the cool of the garden. Could this be a Christophany? Could this be an example of Jesus appearing in time and space before his incarnation? It's at least a theophany, right? See, at least God appearing in a way that Satan, or I mean that Adam and Eve can see and hear him, right? In verse 9, God calls to Adam. Yeah, because God doesn't know where Adam is. <laughs> God knows where Adam is, isn't he? When God says, where are you? It's not really your latitude and longitude, your location. It's where are you in your relationship with me? What is God doing here? He's giving Adam the opportunity to confess. He's given Adam the opportunity, standing there in his fig suit, to come clean. Because coming clean means restoration. You see, there's a moral component to what's going on here. It's not just the idea of the fig suit. It's what's going on in relationship with the one true God. In verse 11, again, God gives Adam the opportunity to confess. You see, God knows. Just the way Messiah restored Peter, remember? Jesus restoring Peter, he knew. This is God giving Adam a chance to confess. In, in verses 12 to 13, the man blames the woman for offering him forbidden fruit. God asks the woman for explanation, and she blames the serpent for deceiving her. My friends, sinners... Respond by displacing. Saints respond by admitting. You see, there are two kinds of sorrow in the world. There is godly sorrow, which leads to life. I'm sorry, I didn't mean what I did. And then there's worldly sorrow, which leads to death, which is, I'm sorry, I got caught. We find this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. In verses 14 through 15, God's divine curse on the serpent includes a demotion among the animals. He will now crawl forever and eat dust, and there will be enmity between the descendants of the, descendants of the serpent and the descendants of the woman. This enmity will result in the serpent's head being crushed, which is elimination, and the descendant of the woman having his heel wounded. It's going to be a serious wound, but it's not fatal. You'll note here that the serpent is cursed, not Eve. Eve suffers the effects of the curse, but she herself is not cursed. I wonder if the serpent and the rainbow are both reminders of God's curse and then release. As you look at the serpent and then you look at the rainbow, that God has given us things here in the horizontal to remind us of this great work that he's doing. 
I had a conversation with Zach Ritz last week. He gave me a quick rundown. A little girl, an elementary girl, had realized that that the serpent had been reduced to crawling on its belly and eating dust. And she said to her teacher, aren't we made of dust? Isn't Satan really trying to eat us? Now in verse 15, I think this is one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. This is the Proto-Evangelum. This is the genesis of the gospel. It is the establishment of two lines of humanity. What does Pastor John tell us all the time? There's only two kinds of people, right? Those who need Jesus and those who have Jesus. This is the division right here. There's Messiah's line, which is promised through Abel, who was murdered by Cain, and then his younger brother Shem. So Seth, I mean. So Seth is the godly line through David through Abraham and on down to Messiah. And then Cain is the ungodly line. And those two lines will be in contest for the rest of biblical narrative. So what is it about this enmity between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Satan's serpent? There are three things to notice here. The enmity generates two classes of people, those who have Jesus, those who need Jesus. There is a personal male agent, he... And that ultimately, the destruction of the serpent is accompanied by a near-fatal blow to the hero, but the hero will survive. So from Genesis 3.15, which is the proto-evangelum, to John 3.16, when you open up that line of narrative, do you see what happens here? God introduces the gospel in Genesis, and he completes it in the gospels. This horrible moment in human history, our God and King puts this good news right into the narrative, doesn't he? Now here's something interesting. In verse 16, we notice that God is going to increase pain during childbearing. What does that mean about pain? It means that there might have been pain in Eden before the fall. Increase in pain, not introduction of pain. So pain was good. In its rightness and in God's very good glory and balance, pain was probably a good thing. It was right. But here it's going to be increased. Now, fellas, as much as you don't want to hear this, Eve's desire for her husband had nothing to do with sex. Man! Right? This same word in Hebrew is used in chapter 4, verse 7, when God warns Cain that Evil is crouching at the door of his life and desires him. It's the notion of being over, to to rule. So a woman leaves her position as helper, and men, we just leave. Isn't that true? We don't want the conflict, so we just leave. What a sad condition. And here we see it beginning in Genesis chapter 3. In verses 17 through 19, man's consequences includes the preamble of condemnation for listening to his wife versus listening to God. The ground is cursed, not Adam. It's cursed to grow thorns and thistles. Toil, his work which was so enjoyable, so fulfilling, now becomes painful. Food becomes a struggle. You notice the phrase plants of the field? That's what the animals are eating. Adam and Eve had a special place with a special menu and a special diet, but now they're lumped in with the rest of creation. 
the sweat of the brow for food, and then you return to dust, which is the death we suffer when this earth suit stops working. Adam and Eve put something above God. Eve put the fruit above God, and Adam put his wife above God. They're both bad decisions. And then death enters creation. Spiritual death is immediate. Physical death is eventual. And finally, the second death is going to be the end of those who refuse the rescue of Jesus. And that's going to be in the lake of fire. In Revelation 21, 8, we read, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. If you also reference in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Thank God that Jesus paid our sin debt for us. The second principle today is there is no escape from the wages of sin. There is no escape from the wages of sin. Uh-huh. Yeah, we escaped. Well, guess who didn't? Jesus didn't escape. There is no escape from the wages of death. Somebody has to pay the debt. You or Jesus? I'll say it again. Somebody has to pay the debt because God the Father is a perfect judge. Nothing slides under the table. That doesn't happen to a good judge. No, just let that go. That's not what a good judge does. A good judge takes every single detail, every single case, and judges rightly. And that's the one we worship. Sadly, though, we don't escape. An application of that truth then might be, who will pay your sin debt, brothers and sisters, you or Jesus Messiah? And how do you know that to be true? Ask your friends and family members who deny Jesus about sin. They've ignored that reality. The last division, Adam and Eve, are removed from Eden, verses 20 through 24. They're castaways. In verse 20, um, the man calls his wife Eve. She's the mother of everything living. This may be an attempt to, to, to encourage her. I mean, this has been a very, very sad moment in our history. And, and Adam is naming his wife life. Honey, look, we're going to focus on life, not death. He names her life. Can you see that? Oh, hey, hey, life. So that they're constantly reminded that they're going to strive for that which, even the shadow which God had intended for them. Although a profoundly sad eviction, Adam demonstrates his faith in God with the promise of recovery by naming his wife life. In verses 21 through 22, God makes clothes from animals for Adam and Eve. He prevents them from eating of the tree of life because they have taken of the prohibited fruit and they will... Becoming like God, they, they'll, he restricts them from having access to the tree of life. Do you think that just maybe Adam and Eve knew those animals that were slaughtered for them? I mean, in Eden, who knows what the animals could have done as far as communication and relationship? A beloved pet. How would you feel if your beloved dog or cat had to be slaughtered and its blood shed because of your crime against God? 
I think this is true because if you go forward to the Exodus, there's uh, in Exodus 12, 5 through 6, the, the rules when it came to the Passover was you were to go to the flock of the herd, take that one-year-old male unblemished lamb or goat, bring it into your home. You took it from its mother, its flock, its place, and brought it into your home. And the phrase there is, and cared for it. You were going to have a relationship with this animal that you were then going to what? Cut its throat and bleed it dry and take that blood and put it on your door. Wouldn't that have increased the weight and the sorrow of their crime against God, knowing that an innocent animal had to die for them and that the skin of that innocent animal was going to be a constant and daily reminder of their sin? And that's what these clothes should be doing for us every day. Reminding us that we're naked. But the glory is the king of the universe has changed our title by the work of his blessed son, Jesus of Nazareth. The fact that these two animals had to be slaughtered foretells that hundreds of thousands of innocent animals will be slain as sacrifices and all of that death points to the Lamb of God who is Jesus of Nazareth and today the ceremonial law is closed by his sacrifice. Colossians 2, 16 through 17 reads, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival or new moon celebrations, or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In verses 23 through 24, God ejects Adam and Eve from the garden to work the ground, and he secures the entrance to Eden with a cherubim and a flaming sword protecting the tree of life. And this is an act of mercy because if Adam and Eve had then partaken of the fruit of the tree of life in their fallen condition, they'd have been like that forever. And that's not what God wants for us. Which is why our, or our scripture verse this morning was Revelation 22, 1 through 5. That's what God wants for us. That's eventually where he is going to bring us back to Eden, isn't he? Well, this eviction, this sad moment in verse 22, you again see the uniplural concept that God says, now like they are one of us, he's not talking to the angels, he's that beautiful community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how are we like that? We are now knowledgeable of good and evil. What does that mean, brothers and sisters? Every decision that you make in life, even if it's what color tie to wear, is going to be classified as good or bad. I mean, you can pick out a bad tie, right? It's not the right color, it's not the right length, it's not the right width. Ultimately, everything is either right or wrong. The color of the shoes I pick, these two different colored socks I have on, I got a pair like this at home somewhere, right? It all boils down to either right or wrong. It's either, it's either appropriate or it's not appropriate. It's either good or evil. That is the dividing point of all of universal history. And so when we determine that we can go out on our own and make the ultimate decisions about right and wrong, it just filters down to everything else. So that tree didn't just represent good and evil. It represented who we were going to trust for the decisions we make. Lord, am I going to trust you and not have to make it up as I go along? 
and live a life that's more fulfilling and balanced and more fun, basically, or am I going to make it up as I go along? And that's what's happened to our whole culture today. Well, sadly, the first couple are evicted. God spares Adam and Eve from being eternally in that horrible state by evicting them and making sure they don't have access to the tree of life. The last principle, there is no eviction as sad as Adam and Eve's. How could we apply that truth? How has the Lord God clothed you in spite of your naked rebellion against him this year? Because he does. He is our compensation, right? So in conclusion, do you and I get a clue today of the, orig- the origin of the foul brokenness that's all about us? Did we get a clue about why we struggle with temptation? Do we get a clue as to why marriage is so hard sometimes? Do we get a clue as to why we love things and use people instead of using things and loving people? Do we get a clue as to why people spend so much time, effort, and talent denying God's authority and goodness? Do we get a clue why God's word is under constant assault and ridicule? Why the nuclear family is under constant attack and violence just soaks our world? Why men shake their fists at God in white hot hatred accusing him of their crimes? Do we get a clue today as to why we live at the bottom of an ocean of sadness, suffering, and violent tragedy? Do we have a clue? Uh, But there's good news. The best detective in the universe is also our lawyer and our judge. And he seeks everything that is right for us. His promise is to be with you and me until he returns us to our original estate, which is Eden. Let's pray, shall we? Mighty one, thank you so much for all you've revealed to us today in this chapter, in the book of Genesis, in your book, which we call the Holy Bible. Thank you for inhabiting our music and that which we discuss today. Seal in our hearts these truths that we might adore you more, seek your face in favor, and know you. That we might be motivated, mighty one, even though we are outside the garden, you, our true garden, dwell in us. And we trust your promise that you will return us to Eden. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray together. Amen. A happy Sunday to you all. And uh, if you haven't received an invitation to my birthday party, it's because, hey, did you say there isn't one? God be blessed. God be praised. A happy Sunday. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. 
We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.